0: Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And today, I want to tackle a really interesting, complicated, and potentially scary topic, and that is predictive text generation. And I know that sounds weird to say potentially scary, but, you know, stick with me. I'm sure many of you have seen social media posts that say things like type I am the' on your phone and then generate a result using the middle option of predictive text. So, you know, just for example, I did that. If I did that on my phone, then I get, I am the only one who can help me with this. Oh, too real. Predictive text. I mean, I'm the only one who researches and writes these episodes. That's it's way too real. But the whole meme of using predictive text to generate seemingly meaningful or, you know, sometimes wildly absurd phrases is just part of what I want to talk about today. Now, the reason this topic jumped at me is because of a recent news article that I read over on The Verge. The article that was written by Kim Lyons has the title, A College Student Used GPT-3 to Write Fake Blog Posts and Ended Up at the Top of Hacker News. Now, as the headline indicates, a computer science student used a predictive text engine called GPT-3, a beta build of it, in fact, that stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer, and then generated a blog post that was featured on a site called Hacker News as if it were a piece written by a flesh-and-blood human being. What's more, a thread on Reddit showed that only a few people were picking up on the feeling that something hinky was going on, and that perhaps the blog post had not been written, but generated. And Lyons goes on to point out that the fact that there's a lot of, you know, not very good writing on the internet makes it a little harder to suss out a decent generated post as opposed to a written one. It's not so much that the AI has become super awesome at writing, but rather that we've kind of lowered the bar more than a little. This kind of plays into the whole concept of a Turing test. So just to go off on a tangent here, this isn't in my notes, I'm just going to speak off the cuff. The Turing test is named after Alan Turing, a famous computer scientist, and The idea nowadays, it's kind of evolved into this idea of you have a a series of interviews that a person does over a computer. And some of the interviewees are people, and some of them are chatbots, essentially. And the goal of this whole exercise is to see if the person who's doing the interview can consistently tell if the other entity on the other side of the interview, is a person or if it's a chatbot. And if you pass with a certain percentage, you would say that the chatbot has passed the Turing test, that people are unable to tell the difference between the chatbot and a real human being, and that this is kind of one of the markers for artificial intelligence. We're going to be dipping into that sort of thing with this discussion as well. So today, I am really wanted to dive into the whole concept of predictive text and how it's done and how it could absolutely destroy platforms like Facebook in the future. That's how I'm going to end this episode, so stick around. But we have to build on this gradually. So let's start at the very beginning, which, according to this woman who's singing outside my window, is a very good place to start. And we are going to start with a particularly tricky concept for a former English lit major to try and explain. And this is called a Markov model. It's named after a mathematician named Andrey Andreevich Markov. And he was born in Russia in 1856. And he did a lot of work on an area of mathematics called stochastic processes. But that just raises another question, right? What does stochastic mean? Well, a stochastic variable is one that is randomly determined. A stochastic system has a random probability pattern that you can study, but you can't predict it precisely. There's always uncertainty. So you can assign probabilities as to how the pattern will form, But those are just indications of how likely a particular pattern will form, not a guarantee. So let's take a very simple example and let's pick something really random. Let's talk about my two-year-old niece. So let's say my niece is standing in the middle of a room and I walk in. Now, based on my past interactions with this random creature, I know my niece is likely to do one of three things. She is going to run at me and grab my hand and then boss me around and put me someplace and tell me I have to stay there. She's going to run away from me and then hide and then demand very loudly that I come find her. Uh, She is not, I should add, quite grasped the concept of hiding. Or she is going to ignore me and sing and or dance. Those are the things that she typically does. There are other things she might do as well, but they happen much less frequently. So let's say I wanna sketch out this scenario on paper. I might start with the scenario is my niece is in a room and I come into the room. Then I would draw little bubbles on my paper, to represent the potential actions, or states, as we would call them in a Markov chain, that could follow this input of me walking into the room. Now, based on the number of times I've seen her respond before, I could weight each of those states with a certain probability. If, for example, she runs at me and grabs my hand, then bosses me around more than half the time, I can weight that outcome as, you know, 55%. And does that mean the next time I walk into a room that she's going to do that? No, each incident is random. I'm just illustrating how likely a particular outcome is going to be. I would then assign probabilities for the other two outcomes I outlined and, and maybe just ignore all the outliers and say that one of them is you know, 40% likely, which means the third one is only 5% likely to happen, because it has to add up to 100%. Now, the example I just gave is ridiculously simple, despite the fact that my niece is already incredibly complicated. And it just gives us the odds of one starting state, that of me walking into a room, that then transitions into one of three outcome states. Markov models can have lots of variables, with some variables dependent upon the value of other variables. So you might see a chain that has something like, if outcome A happens and there's a 60% chance that it will, then there's a 30% chance that a subsequent outcome, A3, will happen. And it can become a really complex branching path of possibilities. But we can stick with simple. Let's take the coin flip the classic example of a random variable. We know that the odds of a fair coin landing heads up are 50% and landing tails up are 50%. Flipping a coin many thousands of times should show that, collectively, you're gravitating toward those probabilities, that about half of your coin flips will be heads and the other half will be tails. But that does not mean you won't get on streaks, where you flip heads over and over, a la Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. And if you don't know that reference, I highly recommend that you read that play or you watch the excellent film version that has Tim Roth and Gary Oldman in it, because it is fantastic and it kind of dives into a fun discussion of probabilities and what does that actually mean. Anyway, the odds of flipping a coin heads are 50% for a single coin flip. But what about a second coin flip? Well, if we look at just that flip in isolation, that second coin flip, it's still a 50% chance that it's going to land on heads. But if we frame it a different way, if we ask the question, what are the odds of flipping heads twice in a row? This is a different question because you're not thinking about Individual flips. You're saying, what are the odds of this happening twice sequentially? Well, now we have to take the odds of it happening once, which is 50%, and then we have to multiply it against itself. It's a 50% chance again that it would happen twice. So 50% of 50% is, let me do the math, it is 25% or one fourth. So if you were to do a pair of coin flips and you were to repeat this experiment over and over and over again, over the long run, you would find that 25% of those sequences would end up with heads followed by heads. But what if we wanted to say, how, what are the odds of flipping three heads in a row? Well, then we have to half it again. So instead of one out of every four uh, trials, we would see one out of every eight or 12.5%. And we can keep extending this out. We can figure out the odds of some ridiculously long stretch of flipping heads in a row. Now, in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, we are told that it happens an astonishing 92 times in a row. That streak has a probability of one in five octillion. Uh, That would be a five followed by 27 zeros. This does not mean that it would be impossible, but it is unfathomably unlikely. Clemson University has a useful lecture available online in the form of a presentation, and it's titled Introduction to Markov Models, and it uses weather forecasting as an example. And their example takes three initial states, sunny, rainy, and cloudy, Consequently, those are also the three potential output states. So each state can transition into three states, including transitioning into itself. So you could go sunny to cloudy, sunny to rainy, or sunny to sunny. That's a valid result as well. And in their example, uh, the idea is that we have based on past observations, figured out the probability for specific forecasts based on whatever the current weather happens to be. So, for example, we figured out that rain tomorrow is 60% likely if it's raining today, but it's only 20% likely if it's just cloudy or sunny today. So 20% if it's cloudy, 20% if it's sunny, 60% if it's raining today that we'll see rain tomorrow. But our model would need to have probabilities assigned to each pair of starting and ending states. So I'm gonna follow through with that just for the purposes of this conversation. And we've covered the probabilities of tomorrow being rainy based on whatever today's weather is. But the example from Clemson also gives the other two outcome states. Uh, So if we're looking at the probability of tomorrow being cloudy, we see that based on our past observations, that if today is sunny, it's a 20% chance of cloudy tomorrow. If today is rainy, it's a 30% chance, and if today is cloudy, there's a 50% chance. And finally, if we want to know if it's gonna be sunny tomorrow, again, this is all just based on the example, we see that if today is sunny, there's an 80% chance that tomorrow will be too. If today is rainy, it's just a 5% chance. If today is cloudy, there's a 15% chance. Now, the reason we need to know all of these probabilities will become clear in a second, And again, these are just examples. They don't reflect real data. Markov got very clever and began to use math to describe probabilities for predictions that are further out than one state. So, for example, you might say, what is the probability that if today is cloudy, that tomorrow will be sunny and that the following day will be rainy? This is kind of similar to us asking the question of what are the odds of flipping heads two or three times in a row, except we're looking at the probabilities of weather that are based on what our current conditions happen to be. So using the example probabilities that were used in that lecture, we would find that sunny days follow cloudy days just 15% of the time. So there's a 15% chance that tomorrow will be cloudy if today is sunny. And rainy days follow sunny days 20% of the time. So if tomorrow is sunny, there's a 20% chance the day after tomorrow will be rainy. So then that means that if today is cloudy, we've got that 15% chance tomorrow will be sunny. And if it is sunny, there's a 20% chance that the day after tomorrow will be rainy. So we have to multiply those probabilities together. We have to multiply that... 15% by 20%, or 0.15 times 0.2, that gives us 0.03, which we convert to a percentage. That means there's just a 3% chance that if today is cloudy, tomorrow will be sunny and the day after tomorrow will be rainy. That's just a 3% chance of that happening. And the further out we try to predict a particular sequence of weather, the lower the probability will be. Meaning, you know, it could happen. It's not like it's impossible, but it gets less likely the further out we go from our initial state. So a Markov model is a stochastic model that describes potential sequences. It is temporal in nature. That means we are really concerned with the state of things, and how those states will change over time. And it gives us a way to explain how current states will depend upon previous states. It's not just about predicting the future, but also understanding the present. Why are things the way they are right now? And it gives us the chance to weigh the predictions of the future based upon past observational data. This is why we see weather forecasts that give us percentages for rainy days, like a 70% chance for rain tells us that it's probably a good idea to bring an umbrella if we're going outside, because based on past observations, there's a decent chance it's going to rain today. Now, let's get more complicated. What if we don't actually know the current state of the weather? Let's say that you are stuck inside, and you can't see out a window, you have no windows in the room you're in, and someone else comes in to your room and says, what's the weather like outside? Well, the only hint that we have in this experience is if the person that comes in is carrying an umbrella or not. We don't actually know the current state. We can only make an educated guess based on the presence or absence of an umbrella. The reality of the current state is hidden from us. This leads us to a type of sequential analysis that's used in computer science, the hidden Markov model. So with these models, we're trying to learn more about the initial states by analyzing the outcomes that we can observe. And another way of putting it is we're trying to answer the question, why are things how they are right now? Why did this happen? Let's look back and figure out the probability that a particular initial state led to what is going on right now. Now the whole reason I spent time talking about Markov models and probability is that it ties heavily into predictive text. It's also used in tons of other computational processes and analysis from natural language analysis to genome sequencing. It's really powerful stuff. If we think about language, We know that there are certain rules to things. You can't just string random letters in a sequence and expect that to make a word that other people can understand. We have developed languages that have their own vocabularies and syntax and grammars. We know that in English, for example, the letter Q is nearly always followed by the letter U. We know that it would be very odd to see the letter H follow right behind the letter J in English. And so we can start building out a dictionary and a matrix. And the dictionary would include lots of common words, and the matrix would include basic rules to help us identify when someone is making a typo or misspelling something. And with these tools, we could build out a method for predicting a letter based on the letters that were already typed. So if I typed T and then H, my predictive text might helpfully offer out the letter E because I frequently type the word the. If I ignore that, and I hit the letter A, I might get the prompt of using than, or thank, or maybe even thanks, or maybe something else. And we're starting down that journey toward generative text. When we come back, I'll explain more about this and some really cool experiments with using machine learning and what that all means. But first, let's take a quick break. Okay, so we're building out a tool that quote unquote understands basic probabilities of words appearing in a given language in a given order. And it understands that, for example, a Q will be followed by a U nearly 100% of the time in English. We build into this model all sorts of probabilities so that words that are more common are going to pop up as autocomplete options more frequently than uncommon words. But we can do better than this. We can pair this with a learning model. Learning models evolve over time. They adjust based on the input fed to them. And we're talking about lots and lots of input. They refine themselves. So in other words, they learn. So with learning models, our predictive text begins to adjust to the specific individual who uses the predictive text over time, like a phone. So let's say you and I each have the same particular model of smartphone, and we're both running the same operating system version and everything, like our phones are, are essentially identical, at least at casual glance. And we've both been using these phones for a few weeks. And in that time, you and I have each used our phones to send various messages to our friends, our family, our colleagues, You know, your arch nemesis, Ben Bolan, you know, the usual. As we do that, our predictive text keyboards start to pick up on how we use words. And it can build up a frequency matrix, which isn't just looking at words that are common in general, but words that are common to us as individuals, and the way that we use words, and sometimes the way we generate words. Maybe you happen to use the word balderdash a lot, and so you start typing the word and the autocomplete for ballerdash will jump up much faster than it would if I were typing it on my phone because my phone has never heard me use that. So it doesn't automatically assume that's what I'm typing. Maybe I use the word folderol a lot and the same happens with my phone compared to yours. The models learn the words we use not and not just the words, the words we create as well. So let's say that I was for some reason, a big fan of How I Met Your Mother, which I'm not. But let's say that I am a big fan of Neil Patrick Harris, which is true. And his character often says, that is, wait for it, legendary. Uh, And they might extend the word legendary. So to do that, I might throw in a whole bunch of extra E's at the beginning of legendary. Well, my phone might pick up that I tend to do this. And so it includes that as a legitimate word, even though any sort of spelling check would say, this ain't a word, stop it. But my phone's predictive text is going to include it as saying, this is something that is meaningful and thus a valid option. Also, the phones can learn to adapt to our own sense of syntax and grammar, Perhaps for purposes of a particular effect, one of us tends to tweak the syntax of the language that we're communicating in for some reason. Maybe it's for comedic effect, and it's not following the established rules of grammar for English. But our phone starts to understand that's how we communicate, based on how we order our words and how we generate our phrases. You know, how we communicate— that while our choices aren't necessarily in alignment with an established formal system, they represent a particular approach to communicating. Predictive text can start to get a handle on that if it's built properly, and even someone who communicates in an idiosyncratic way might find that their phone is offering up particularly relevant suggestions. So how does all this work? How do machines actually learn stuff? Well, there's not one single method, but there are a collection of related processes that computer scientists develop to train machines. And you can look at two major types of categories of machine learning, and there are a lot of subtypes under each of these. And those would be supervised learning and unsupervised learning. Supervised learning involves training a computer model using known input and output information. So let's take an example that I like to use a lot, and it's about image recognition. So let's say you're teaching a computer to recognize images of coffee mugs, and you have an enormous supply of images, millions of them. Some of them contain coffee mugs in various shapes and sizes and colors and orientations and uh, the, the lighting can be different. You might have the handle pointing to the left in some or pointing to the right or the other. In some cases, it might be on its side. But you've got tons of these. And you also have millions of images of other stuff. Some of it might not even resemble a mug remotely. Maybe it's an airplane or Christopher Walken. Others might look kind of like a mug, You know, it might be a glass or a bowl or something similar. Now, as a human being, you can tell straight away if the image you've got in front of you represents a coffee mug or not. But machines don't inherently possess this ability. You could feed one photo of a generic off-white coffee mug when the handle happens to be pointed to the left, and you tag that photo as a coffee mug, you give metadata to the computer to classify that as a coffee mug, and if you created a database of images, maybe you do a search for a coffee mug, that one would come up as a result because of all the work you've done with tagging this thing, and effectively telling the computer this is what I mean by coffee mug. However, if you fed a new image, and this one is of a red coffee mug, that's of a different size, maybe the photo has different lighting conditions, maybe the mug is a little closer to the camera, the handle's pointed to the right, not the left, would the computer automatically know that that's a coffee mug? No, it hasn't learned that. So you would have to build a predictive model for a computer to follow based on the known input and outputs. Your output is you want, the computer to classify photos as either having a coffee mug in them or not. And you might use an artificial neural network. In this case, you're creating nodes that accept input then they apply some sort of decision-making process to that input and then pass it along further along the network. You can almost think of nodes as essentially making a yes or no judgment on a piece of data. Does the input qualify or does it not? Does it have this particular aspect of whatever it is you're looking at, in our case, coffee mugs, or does it lack that? With our mug example, it could be a simple question like, is this mug shaped? But the nodes are asking lots of questions and making lots of judgments and passing them throughout the neural network until you get to the final output, the final judgment of, is this a coffee mug or is it not? And computer scientists influence how the computer processes information. They adjust the weighting of answers, weighting as in like Weight, as in heavy, W E I G H T, weighting. So you create your model, you use nodes that are making a series of judgments on images, you weight those decisions so that you're hopefully going toward a more accurate result, and you feed your photos through and you look at the output. Now you know whether the photos have a coffee mug in them or not. You're looking to see if the computer can recognize that. So you're looking to see if your model succeeded or failed. And then you go back and you make adjustments to your neural network. You adjust the weightings of those decisions so that the nodes process information in a slightly different way. And you always have the goal of improving the accuracy of the overall system. You feed the images through it again, and you do this over and over. You train the computer model so that it gets more accurate as you make these adjustments. And ultimately, you get to a system that can accept brand new images, ones that haven't been deliberately chosen, and then sort those into images that either are of a coffee mug or are not. And this is in an area called classification. So in our simple example, images just fall into two broad classifications, photos with mugs or photos without though we're gonna get a little more complicated a little bit later. So you can have all sorts of classifications. Uh, Medical imaging systems make use of this sort of machine learning process to uh, indicate whether or not an image of of a tumor is benign or not. Handwriting recognition programs do this too. Speech recognition can do this as well. So supervised learning systems can also use a different approach called regression as a means of training a system. Regression is all about predicting a continuous response, like how much electricity a community is going to need over time. Uh, It's about predicting things to which you can assign real numbers. So for example, predicting a change in temperature. Temperature happens to have a value that is a real number, so that falls into this category. That's supervised learning, where we have the known inputs and known outputs. We know definitively if the information the computer generates is accurate or not because we can actually check its work. It's kinda like a teacher grading student tests and then working with a student who has a low score to get a better understanding of subject matter, and then on the next test, hopefully they score better. And you keep working with that student over and over until they have reached a a high enough level of consistency of being correct. Unsupervised learning is more about finding patterns or meaning in data where no such patterns or meaning is initially obvious. When we talk about sifting through big data to find patterns, this is the kind of thing we're talking about. Those patterns might be subtle or they might only be obvious when you're dealing with truly enormous amounts of information. We humans are really good at spotting patterns up to a point. It's part of our survival mechanism. Recognizing patterns helped ancient humans recognize prey or predators. So it's a key element to the survival of our species. But when you get to really, really big quantities of data, it's hard for us to see patterns. It would be kind of like if you jumped off a boat in the middle of the ocean and then you were told to look for patterns that are the size of New Zealand, you'd be lost right away. The scale is something we can't deal with. But computer systems can handle data far more efficiently than we can, and that means they can potentially spot patterns where we would not. Unsupervised learning techniques are best for this, and they have a few different approaches. One is clustering, which is pretty much what it sounds like. The system looks for groupings in data, indications of clusters, pattern clusters. And now I need to get back to my image recognition coffee mug analogy. If we were just feeding images that are either a coffee mug on a neutral background or something else, then we could go supervised learning all the way. But if we wanted to create a system that could recognize if a coffee mug were in a larger scene, like a crowded kitchen table, lots of other stuff is on it, we could probably rely a bit on unsupervised learning in which we would use clustering to teach the system to look for data that collectively appears to represent a coffee mug. We're trying to create a system that can pick out the shape of a coffee mug in an image that has a lot of other shapes in it. The system needs to understand which shapes, which lines and curves represent the borders of objects. So what is a coffee mug as opposed to, say, a tablecloth or a shadow or a bowl with a spoon next to it? unsupervised pattern recognition can lead to that outcome. Again, it requires a lot of training. You feed millions of images to a system numerous times to refine this approach. The method often relies upon hidden Markov models. Oh, and this also ties into something else that's you know tangentially related, but I thought I would bring it up in case you guys have been experiencing it as much as I have. If you've noticed a lot more instances of websites demanding that you prove you're not a robot with a CAPTCHA, uh, by the way, this is a good reminder that if you go to the Tech Stuff store at tpublic.com slash stores techstuff, you can get a shirt or, you know, dare I say a coffee mug with this CAPTCHA robot idea on it. A lot of those CAPTCHAs involve a series of photos, and it's your job to click all the photos that have something specific in them, you know, like bicycles or crosswalks or traffic lights or fire hydrants. If you've wondered why that is, well, it all comes down to good traffic versus bad traffic. There's a lot of traffic out there that is uh, powered by bots for various reasons. And... That can clog things up, and so systems and companies like Google want to prioritize traffic that's good traffic. It represents actual people trying to do stuff and give them preferential access to other methods that might be malevolent or just might end up making things run slower if they get unfettered access. And the reason these CAPTCHAs are getting so difficult is because machine learning and image recognition software has gotten really good. And so to protect against bad traffic, companies like Google are using difficult CAPTCHA systems that present fuzzy, dimly lit, or otherwise, you know, bad photographs to you, and your job is to stare at them, possibly on a tiny smartphone screen, and figure out which ones are legit. The whole goal is to present photos that are so lousy that machines can't really deal with them. The problem is, over the long run, machines get better at doing this sort of stuff, whereas we kind of, you know, we have a cap on our performance. There will come a point where an image will be get, you know, too fuzzy or too dim for us to make out if there's a fire hydrant in there or not. The machines will always get better at stuff at this than than we are over the long run. Heck, older CAPTCHA systems are completely obsolete now because computer systems can complete them at a success rate that's actually higher than humans We've got a lot of science fiction stories about machines becoming sentient and ruining humanity, but the truth of the matter is, they don't need sentience to be disruptive. If they are directed by someone for a specific malevolent purpose, that's bad enough, even if the machines aren't really, you know, thinking for themselves. Okay, but let's get back to predictive text after all of this. You could create a machine learning model that has a huge database of words, you know, a dictionary. And you could program the system to classify the words. You could suss out which words are nouns and verbs and adjectives and then apply rules to how those words can go together to make sentences. Or you could just, you know, analyze a ton of literature and have the computer kind of figure that out for itself. Just through statistical analysis, understand how words fit together based upon the history of the written word, at least in modern english for example if you went further back to like old english uh, first of all your vocabulary would be totally different but your grammar would be too and suddenly things would not make much sense it would everything would sound like yoda So the system could go through millions of pages of materials, building a statistical model that shows how frequently certain words pair together and in which order. Effectively, you're analyzing how humans put letters together to make words and words together to make sentences. You could move up from there. You could try and analyze how sentences come together to make up paragraphs. But it starts to get tricky However, you can work on a system that can present a series of sentences that are related enough to be a coherent presentation of ideas, at least in the short run. It might not be super compelling or as effective as what a human could do, but it could be a lot more impressive than just, you know, a string of totally unrelated words. When we come back, I'll talk a bit more about how computer systems can put words together for us and what that could mean in the future. But first, let's take another quick break. Okay, so AI systems, if sophisticated enough, can use stuff like hidden Markov models and machine learning to put together strings of words that, from a probability standpoint, a statistical standpoint, at least are likely to make some sense. There's no guarantee it will actually make sense, but if things are going well, the phrases will be grammatically correct, and if they're going really well, the word choice will be reasonable enough to pass muster. But this is still pretty hard. Computer systems typically lack the ability to build on context and meaning because they're effectively looking for what is most likely to come next rather than looking back at what has already come before. Does that make sense? Well, let me put it another way. In our weather example, I talked about how the predictions for future weather depended on current weather. So what is it doing today? If it is sunny today, there's an 80% chance it will be sunny tomorrow, according to our example. But the predictions don't depend upon the weather that came earlier, like what happened yesterday. The system doesn't care about yesterday's weather. We might care because we're using long trends of weather to act as our data source to train the computer model, you know, to create those probabilities. But yesterday's weather, as far as the computer system is concerned, has no impact on tomorrow's weather. So if yesterday were rainy and today is sunny, The computer doesn't really care, it just cares that today is sunny. The same thing can hold true with systems that are creating predictive text. The goal with standard predictive text is to save users time and effort by suggesting likely words as you, you know, start typing. So if you start typing the word technology, at some point the system recognizes the letter pattern and offers that up as an option. And for words that are frequently used in pairs, you'll get those suggestions right away after you type the first word. Since this is typically presented as an option, you know, something you can choose to use or not, it's pretty simple to avoid going wrong unless you, as a user, fumble things and accidentally pick the wrong word, which can get kind of embarrassing. Or if it auto-completes after the fact, thinking that you made a spelling error and then you have accidentally spelled Tim Minchin's name as Tim Munchkin, and I am deeply sorry for that. Auto-replies with email get a little more complicated as the system is analyzing the message that is coming into you before formulating a possible response. So I have email systems that do this for me. And one common example for me is that our sales team here at our company Will send me an email asking if I'm okay running a particular sponsor's ads on my show. Now, normally I like to do research on my sponsors, so I'll take time to look into things and then respond myself. But sometimes the request is for a sponsor I'm familiar with and I definitely want, or, you know, occasionally definitely do not want on my show. And I'll see on my phone that I have the option to pick a quick reply of something like, sure, or yes, that's fine, or or something similar. In this case, the email program is using natural language systems and predictive text to suss out that there is a request and that the common responses I might make to that request should be options. Now, it's not that the computer system actually understands the nature of this request, but more like the structure of a request. In other words, it's saying this looks like it's a yes or no question. Let's present him with responses that are in a yes or no format the fact that the system doesn't really have a deeper understanding can become evident in other use cases. So, for example, Janelle Shane, who is a research scientist and who has a delightful blog called AI Weirdness, took time to try and train a machine learning system to tell jokes. It became clear that the system could construct something resembling a classic question slash punchline style of joke, But it was also clear that the punchline rarely had any connection to the question. It actually reminded me a lot of how little kids, like my two-year-old niece, tell jokes. These jokes are some of my favorite in the world, not because the jokes are inherently funny, but because they are absurd and they show how little children can recognize the structure, but not how to build an actual joke. My favorite of the AI-generated jokes almost got it right, and it went like this. What do you get when you cross a dinosaur? They get a lawyer's. I mean, that's that's almost a real joke. I actually love that one. Shane pointed out the bit that I mentioned earlier, that these systems have next to no short-term memory. And so building any lengthy response is pretty much impossible because the computer system is so focused on choosing the word that comes next without an understanding of the connection or context of what came earlier. And you may have come across stuff like uh, a social media post that says something along the lines of, I fed a computer 10,000 movie scripts and asked it to write the next you know, Highlander movie or whatever. And then you get a little screenplay, and inevitably they end up being silly and absurd with crazy stage directions and dialogue and descriptions. They also tend to be written entirely by human beings. Most AI systems are incapable of keeping things consistent, like character names. A computer system might create a character name and give that character a line, but That name is not likely to return later on in the screenplay. It's not necessarily going to show up in any stage directions or descriptions. It ends up being more dreamlike and freeform. It's still absurd, but it's not as internally consistent. So if you come across a long piece of absurdist humor that was quote unquote written by a computer, chances are. It wasn't. It was written by a person who was emulating the dreamlike absurdism of computer-generated text. They're still really funny, they're just not necessarily actually generated by a computer. So, about that blog post that ran on Hacker News, how did that get past so many people? It started with Liam Poor, a college student, a computer scientist, who made contact with a PhD student who in turn had access to a private beta build of the GPT-3 autocomplete tool. Poor created a blog post title and an introduction to serve as the launch point for the system to build upon. And together they ran a few trials with this machine learning system and auto-generated text system and uh, with those prompts. And then Poor picked one of the results to submit as a legit blog post. Now, I'm gonna read a little section of it now. The blog post title was Feeling Unproductive? Maybe You Should Stop Overthinking. And here's a segment that comes from the middle of the blog post. Quote, when you engage in creative thinking, your brain starts working more efficiently. It becomes more active and more open to new ideas. It also helps you think outside the box and look at things from a different perspective. So how does this all tie into productivity? Well, if you're a creator, then you should be engaging in creative thinking on a regular basis. The more you do it, the better your brain becomes at thinking up ideas. This makes it easier for you to work on your projects because you won't get stuck as often. End quote. Now, the phrasing makes sense. It's in a very casual style, and other parts of the blog post get, you know, even more casual, sometimes straying into grammatical error territory, It's not terribly precise, nor is it saying anything, really. The example I gave to a friend of mine is that this blog post is just like if I said, you know, if I'm caught outside when it starts pouring down rain, I get wet. I mean, yeah, that statement's true, but it's also, you know, not saying anything, or at least not anything that isn't already evident. All that being said, The blog post impresses the heck out of me, and that's because the paragraphs follow in a logical pattern. It's not well written, but there's so much bad writing out there that it also doesn't stand out. If I had read this without knowing a computer generated it, I'm not certain I would pick up on it. Again, not because it's great writing, but because I've read a lot of really bad writing out there. Heck, I've probably written some of it. Think of some of the content farms out there that post thousands of blog posts a day. There's not as many as there were maybe you know five years ago, but there's still quite a few. Well, a lot of that content is written in a very quick, slapdash style, and, and no, no shade being thrown at the writers. They're trying to make a living, but it's not exactly well-crafted work. This piece could have passed for one of those. And the piece does actually seem to build on itself. New paragraphs reference a point made in an earlier paragraph, something that you didn't see so much of in other systems. New paragraphs build on those earlier ones, not in substantial ways, but there is a coherent link from one paragraph to the next. It's not as free form and absurd as other generative texts that I've seen. As for the autocorrect on our phones, those get more individualized as we use them. Like I said, if I type a proper name like my dog Tybalt, my phone starts to pick up on this, that it's a word that has a particular meaning to me, that it's also a proper noun because I always capitalize it, and that it's not a typo. It's not a misspelling. So while the name wasn't in my phone's dictionary when I first got it, it has been added to that now that I've been using it so much, and it can even auto-complete the name as I start to type now. We have some really impressive examples of generated text or generated language applications in AI. A couple of years ago, Google demonstrated how the Google Assistant could make a phone call to a real human-being-operated business and make an appointment for you. In a demonstration, the assistant called a hair salon and had a brief conversation with the salon employee to book a haircut appointment, and it all sounded, you know, fairly natural. This approach to natural language recognition and generative language is really powerful stuff. In this case, the assistant was relying upon certain parameters, right? The assistant knew which salon the user wanted To call. They knew the time frame that the user had outlined as being appropriate. Uh, In this particular demonstration, it was an appointment slot anytime between 10 a.m. and 12 p.m. It knew what day the user wanted an appointment. It had all the, the basics. And then the assistant could respond to questions and statements from the salon employee on the phone and book the appointment, all without obviously revealing that it was an AI program. The appearance is that the assistant is able to have persistent knowledge, but that's more of an illusion than anything else. It does show that computer scientists are making a lot of progress toward building systems that can generate language that, if it's not deeply meaningful, can at least be useful. I'll close out with something that I covered at the IBM Think conference back in 2019. To demonstrate the power of the Watson platform, which is a a foundation for various applications that all tap into deep AI processes, IBM organized a debate between a debate champion and a system called Project Debater, And the debate was on the topic of subsidizing preschools. Uh, IBM had drawn the pro side of the argument. And I got to watch this debate live in person, and it was impressive. Not that I felt that Watson was able to outmaneuver the skilled, logical, eloquent human champion, but it was able to construct a pretty sound and consistent argument. It wasn't as strong in rhetoric, but it appeared to parse the flow of the debate Properly for the most part, constructing arguments and supporting them with information wherever possible. It didn't come across as quite human, but it was still really impressive. I think it will be quite some time before machines can generate text or speech at a level that compares with skilled humans. You know, humans who incorporate so many things from creativity to insight to intelligence in order to build communication. But progress is being made all the time. And thanks to a surplus of you know, not-so-great communication out there, we're more likely to not notice the computer-generated stuff as it improves. This opens up a lot of thorny problems. We've already got a problem with fake news. In a world where computer systems could generate endless blog posts and articles supporting narratives that don't reflect the truth, we're really gonna be in trouble and i think that's why this news about the blog post passing for a real article should scare platforms like facebook if we reach a point where computers can flood facebook with fake news and other computers are running bots that interact with that fake news fewer people are going to stick around on that platform they're going to it's just going to get a, a, turn to a cesspit of of total nonsense you know, some people will stick around, but a lot of people are just going to bail. People have been bailing already. We're going to see a lot more leave. And once the advertisers get wind that the majority of activity on Facebook isn't even human and therefore doesn't represent actual potential customers, advertising money will start to dry up. And then even a behemoth like Facebook could crumble. Now, I'm not saying this is going to happen quickly. But I think it definitely could and probably will happen, at least in some respect, over the course of the next few years. So, hey, Facebook, maybe think about your oncoming existential crisis and, you know, get ahead of it. It would be good for everybody, including your shareholders, and I know you really care about those. All right, that wraps up this episode of Tech Stuff and how artificial intelligence and machine learning and predictive text are all evolving rapidly in ways that are both cool and, you know, concerning, if we're being totally honest. But I wanna know what you guys think. I also wanna know if you have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff. Reach out to me on Twitter. The handle is TechStuffHSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon.